Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 17 as we hear God's Word and prepare to celebrate the table of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We'll be looking at the first six verses this morning from Luke 17 as we continue our series in the certainty of the Savior. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 17, beginning in verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to a mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Let's pray together. Father, once again we stand before you and ask the ministry of your Spirit would work in our hearts, would rule and reign in our minds, that we might understand and apply your word to our lives, and that your grace might become increasingly evident in our relationships with one another in the body of Christ and with those outside. May Christ rule and reign in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I am surrounded by people, yet I feel so lonely. That sentiment is being expressed by an increasingly large number of people in our crowded yet isolated culture. Two years ago on Valentine's Day, the BBC put out a loneliness survey of which 55,000 people from around the world participated in that survey. One of the things it revealed was not simply that the idea that only older, isolated people are lonely, but that an increasing number of younger people around the world are expressing that same intimate. That same idea. UCLA discovered through a survey that Americans are lonelier than Evan and that Gen Z, those born between 1997 and 2012, may be among the loneliest. 48% of those in that age and stage of life said that they are lonely and or have the fear of not being included, of being left out. And yet we're more connected than ever before through social media. And at the same time, we're feeling more and more isolated. Why is that? One of the reasons may be that internet connectedness is no substitute for authentic community. Facebook and Twitter and every other type of social media cannot measure up to real relationships and real community. You see, God has wired us for relationship. And no matter how much we're on social media at a distance, it will not meet the longing of the human heart for which God's wired us. You've 
seen the reruns, maybe many of you, of the television sitcom Cheers that ran from 1982 to 1993 and the familiar song that began each episode. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see the troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. And yet this longing for belonging is escaping more and more Americans in our crowded yet isolated culture. And that includes many Christians. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who passed away just before the end of World War II, one of his books was entitled Life Together. And in that book he said these things. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself. There are many people, in other words, who have this idea, this idolized idea of what the Christian community should be like and look like and feel like, but when they face difficulties, they do not have what it takes to actually cultivate the kind of community for which we long. When disappointments come and that dream of the ideal community is dashed, Many people simply move on from relationship to relationship, from church to church, or eventually into isolation. Cultivating community is difficult. It is challenging. And Jesus reminds us there will be challenges. And one of the greatest challenges to authentic community, to genuine friendships and community is the reality that as believers in Christ, as members of the redeemed community, we are sinners. It's not just them, it's me. We are sinners. And recognizing that reality is one of the first steps in cultivating genuine community for which our hearts long. And that's one of the things Jesus is dealing with in this particular passage. He's reminding us that as believers, we must be careful in the community of the king, we must be careful not to be the cause of others' sins. Notice in the first two verses and entered chapter of verse 3, Jesus says, temptation to sin are sure to come. The word for temptation is the Greek word skandalon. We get scandal from it. We get the idea of stumbling from it. And the Greek text is even more emphatic. It is impossible for scandals not to come. It is impossible for in a church of any size that will be larger than one for there to be misunderstandings and to sin and be sinned against. But notice what Jesus says here. Woe to the one through whom these scandals, these temptations, these stumbling blocks come. The word woe is a word filled with fear. It is looking at judgment in the face and then crumbling at the judgment, the hands of a God who hates our sin. In fact, Jesus says that judgment is going to be horrific. The judgment for those who are the cause of others to sin is going to be worse. He says it would be better to take a millstone, that is a, a large stone disc that could only be moved by a beast of burden. It would be better to have that tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Now Jesus is using a little Hebrew hyperbole, a little Jewish exaggeration here. I mean imagine a two-ton rock 
chained around your neck before you walked the plank. I mean, years later, the mafia figured out only a cinder block would do that. What's Jesus saying here? What's his point? Scandal is sure to come. Temptations are sure to come. Only be very careful that they do not come through you. Be absolutely certain that you do not become the occasion for the sin of someone else, especially these little ones he mentions. Now, little ones can be children. And we look at the children in our church, and the last thing we want to do is lead them astray. But Jesus is probably expanding it to a much larger, larger audience, to any young believer, any struggling saint, any immature or weak Christian. The Apostle John later wrote, Whoever loves his brother abides in light, and in him there is, listen, no cause for stumbling. Paul, as he wrote the church at Rome, said, Decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. In other words, Jesus and the apostles are calling for an attitude of, Lord, I understand that sin can enter the church. I understand there can be scandal. I understand there can be stumbling blocks. Lord, please do not allow it to come through me. By your grace and for your glory, do not allow for me to be a stumbling block, either by my behavior or by my beliefs. That's why Jesus says in in verse 3, pay attention to yourself. Pay careful attention to yourself. The Apostle Paul echoed those words. In warning against scandal and warning against being a temptation or a cause for others to sin, he said, watch carefully your life and your doctrine. Jesus is saying our attitude must be, Lord, I understand difficulties are come, but please do not allow temptation to come into the body of Christ through my behavior or my beliefs, through my life or through my doctrine. Jesus, please grant me grace and mercy because scandal in the church is inevitable. Jesus says, make sure that it does not come through you. See to it, he says, that you and I do not become a cause for others' sin. But second, notice what else Jesus does in these few verses here. He reminds us that as believers, we must be quick to forgive when sinned against by others. Here's the other inevitability in the body of Christ. Not only might we be a stumbling block for others, but others are definitely going to sin against us as well. So how are we to respond? Just as we're not to be the cause of offense, neither should we be quick not to take offense when sinned against. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. After he sums up the first two verses by pay attention to yourselves, then he says, now if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, when the Scripture says rebuke him, this is not the harsh, lashing out, vindictive, you hurt me, and I'm going to do everything I can to get you and to say that that thing that's going to stick your heart that you'll never forget. Rather, this is the rebuke of a gentle and humble admonition for concern of that brother or sister that's been in sin. Think of Galatians chapter 6. They had their problems. They had behavioral problems and belief problems in the church of Galatia. And Paul comes along and he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a sin, 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. How? In a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself. There's the echoes of Jesus' words again. Keep watch on yourself, lest you to be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. There's long-suffering and patience and kindness implied, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So this rebuke is not vindictive. It's not, I gotcha. I'm going to publicly expose you. I'm going to make you feel as bad as I possibly can. But rather, it is a rebuke out of love that is a personal and private plea for repentance. That's why... In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and right there, remember that your brother has something against you. He sinned against you. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. In other words, a lack of forgiveness can not only hurt marriages, it can not only hurt family relationships, it can hurt entire communities in the body of Christ. And so Christ is calling us to rebuke, reprove, reprimand with gentleness, and humility in order that we might cultivate genuine community. But, but that's not all. For some more than others, rebuke comes rather easily. What really is difficult is what follows. And Jesus said, and if he repents, forgive him. But if he repeats the offense, let him have it with both barrels. Oh, you have another translation. Not quite. Here's where Jesus begins to meddle with our hearts and presents a, a radical forgiveness that, quite frankly, is beyond our human ability. Notice what he reminds us of. If they repent, forgive them. He didn't say how slight or light the offense was. If they sin against you and repent, forgive them. Now, the legalistic, unforgiving spirit wants to latch onto the word Repent if they repent. And so the legalist begins to cross-examine the offender, making doubly sure the repentance is thorough and sincere and the offense will never, ever, ever happen again. And if there's any lingering doubt whatsoever in that scoundrel that did whatever they did to you, that I am withholding forgiveness. I am not extending forgiveness as long as I even smell the scent of a lack of repentance. But Jesus' command here is not so much about the thoroughness of the repentance on the part of the offender as it is about the thoroughness of the forgiveness on the part of the one offended. How do we know that? Jesus makes it abundantly clear. He, he draws an illustration almost out of the theater of the absurd. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you what? You must forgive him, verse 4. Seven times in the same day? You've got to be kidding me. It sounds more like a, a deliberate repeat offender than one who's repented. On another occasion, Peter, who wanted to be the counter, who wanted to keep score, and I know some of us like to keep score when offended, wanted to continue to replay it over and over in his mind. Peter, who wanted to keep track, thereby limiting the boundaries of forgiveness, said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? 
To which Jesus responded, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. In other words, Jesus says the kind of forgiveness that we are to extend is without limit and it is without bounds. Now, let me say something about this forgiveness and what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that this negates church discipline. Oh, just forgive them, move on. Sometimes when the offense is repeated and grievous, it requires church discipline. In fact, the very context in which Jesus said, and Peter asked, 77 times is in the context of Matthew 18 and carrying out church discipline. So Jesus is not saying, throw church discipline out the window. Second, Jesus' teaching on this radical forgiveness does not negate the necessity of just civil punishment by the courts. You do the crime, you do the time, you pay the fine. Uh, Jesus is not saying, oh, civil courts, there's no need for any of these things anymore. Third, his teaching concerning forgiveness does not encourage one to remain in an abusive relationship, especially when that relationship is involving physical abuse. When that's taking place, there should be swift action by the church. There should be swift action by the civil authorities to do everything they can to provide safety for that individual, to provide a haven of rest for them, and to see that that abuser is repentant and even punished for their crime. I've mentioned before, maybe there was something called the Didache. It was a second century document, someone like a book of church order for the early church. And in dealing with what do you do with a husband that has been abusive to his wife, it doesn't go into detail, but it gives you a good enough picture of what might need to take place. The church is instructed, send a couple of stout elders to pay that man a visit. Jesus is not saying if you're in an abusive relationship that you must stay in that relationship. The church and the civil authority should stay, step in to be helpful. And finally, Jesus does not mean that a repeat offender may become your best friend, especially if they continue to sin against you. Jesus is not negating any of these things. At the same time, however, he puts no limits on our call to forgive from the heart. Jesus' teaching is quite clear. When offended, I must what? I must forgive. But I know what you're thinking because it's what I'm thinking. You know, I can offer a Sunday school version of forgiveness for Sunday school versions of offense. But if the offense is real and deep and deliberate, it changes the game doesn't it? But what if the offense is personal and deliberate and deep? What kind of forgiveness is Jesus calling you and calling me to extend? In 2018, former Dallas police officer Amber Geiger walked into an apartment that she allegedly thought was her own and she shot and killed Botham Jean as he sat there in another apartment eating ice cream. And she was convicted of murder, 
10 years in prison for fatally shooting Botham Jean. And after the sentencing, Botham's younger brother, Brant, stood up and he said these words to Geiger. I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I'm speaking for myself, not my family, but, but I love you just like anyone else. And then Brant Jean asked permission from the judge if he could give Amber Geiger a hug. It was permitted, and they ran to each other and they embraced in the middle of that courtroom. They continued to hug each other and cry and whisper to one another for about a full minute. What do you do when it's that kind of sin levied against you? Physical harm to you or maybe even to another loved one. What do you do when whatever the offense has been, it seems seemingly impossible to offer forgiveness to that person for what they did that deeply wounded me, that was deliberate and maybe even repetitive. Jesus is calling us to ask and to grant forgiveness for what feels impossible, to do what is beyond my reach and your reach in our flesh. But how do we do this? What is our hope of being able to express that kind of radical forgiveness to those who have offended and sinned against us? The answer is actually found in verses 4 and 5. Have you ever wondered what the connection was or the context was of these verses of tossing mulberry trees into the sea? Look again. As they're confronted with this impossible task of forgiveness, the apostles all of a sudden realized they can't do this and said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What is Jesus saying? As believers, this kind of faith is necessary for us to do the seemingly impossible. And what is that? To forgive sins of those who deliberately and repeatedly sinned against you. When the disciples began to connect the dots with what Jesus was saying, and the absurd example of someone sinning against you seven times in a single day, multiply that times 365 times however many years you've lived, when they began to connect the dots of the radical nature of the forgiveness, they realized they could not do this in themselves. And they cried out, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you have a faith as small as the size of a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, Jesus doesn't give us this, these two verses out of context to trivialize Miracles. Jesus isn't saying, if you only have enough faith, you can go around tossing shrubs into Lake Hartwell, winning ball games, getting the promotion at work, acing all your exams, or blinding your professors as they grade those exams, whatever it might be. He's not trivializing miracles. 
of us just kind of wheeling and dealing with God and doing all these things. What is, what is he doing here? What is he saying? What's the context? It is through faith, he says, I will provide for you the grace necessary to forgive in the seemingly impossible situations in your life. The mulberry tree was known for its vast and tenacious root system. Some of the trees lived up to 500 years. One of the most difficult trees to uproot. You couldn't do it manually without much help and much digging and much, much oxen. And what is Jesus saying? These mulberry trees that are next to impossible to uproot can be uprooted by faith. In other words, he's saying this, that deeply rooted hatred and bitterness and resentment towards those who have offended you, that relentless, unforgiving spirit that you may have struggled with for decades, it can be uprooted through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in the power of the gospel. And it doesn't require a huge amount of faith. This is the size of a mustard seed. Some of you children may have seen the mustard seeds in, in the children's box out in the lobby area. It's smaller than a BB. The point is that this kind of sinful pattern and unforgiving spirit can be uprooted. And it's not based on the amount of the faith, but the object of the faith, which is the work of Christ. Faith in Him, experiencing the gospel of grace, provides us the ability to do the seemingly impossible of forgiving others who grievously sinned against us. It, it comes through faith and personally knowing the forgiveness of Jesus and really being able to do what, what Barry did from the pulpit earlier, just beginning to tear up over the cost of that forgiveness of my sins. It comes from experiencing and knowing that there no bounds to God's mercy and no bounds to God's grace for me and for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. It comes from recognizing that my offenses committed against Him are nothing in comparison with the aggravation of the offense committed against me or the repetition. Seven times a day, are you kidding me? I wish I could limit my sin to that against God. And yet he's forgiving and merciful and kind. It, it comes from recognizing my offenses committed against him in comparison with others it is nothing. My sins are far more grievous, far more aggravated, and far more repetitive, far exceeding seven times a day. This kind of forgiveness comes from recognizing that God in Christ doesn't just toss mulberry trees into the sea. But Micah says he casts our sins into the sea and so through faith in Christ through his grace and mercy through his forgiveness of my sin those deep seated roots of bitterness and anger and resentment and retaliation and an unforgiving spirit can be uprooted by the power of God in the gospel of Jesus and replaced by forgiveness because we understand something just as in God in Christ has forgiven us. So are we not only called, but we are enabled to forgive those who grievously sinned against us. This changes everything. 
There are marriages in which spouses are holding bitterness and grudges against one another for years and for decades and cannot move forward in a relationship, a vibrant relationship for which God intended because of an unforgiving spirit. And it seems impossible to forgive. There are children who are bitter against their parents for what they've done or haven't done and parents who are, forgive, who, who are embittered towards their children for what they've done or haven't done. There's situations at the workplace and at the university. There's situations in the community and even in churches in which it seems impossible to forgive. And Jesus says, root yourself anew and afresh in the gospel, in the gospel of grace. Historians tell us that King Louis XII was thrown in prison and kept in chains before he ascended to the throne of of France, and shortly after he ascended that throne, some of his close advisors encouraged him to make a list of all his enemies, of all those who had put him in prison and put him in chains, and do everything within his power to end their lives. And so in response, Louis XII made that list of all the enemies that he could think of, all those who had sinned against him and all those who were his political and, and social enemies. And he made a list and he put a red mark beside each of those. Not long after, word got out of the king's blood-red list. It entered the ears of his enemies and they assumed themselves dead men. But not long after, Louis XII clarified the intentions of his list and the red marks beside each one of them. You see, it, each red mark that he put beside the names of those enemies was a red cross. And this is what he said. The cross which I drew beside each name was not a sign of punishment, but a pledge of forgiveness extended for the sake of the crucified Savior who upon His cross forgave His enemies and prayed for them. How is such radical forgiveness to be extended by us? Only as we ourselves understand the red cross marked beside our names. Only as we understand more fully what we sang earlier that God's love for us and our sin ran red. Only as we understand by grace that Christ did the seemingly impossible for us at the cost of his own life that we might know forgiveness, that we might know mercy, that we might know grace. In a very real sense, this Lord's table, like the red mark by the names of Louis XII's list, stands as a pledge of forgiveness for Christ's once enemies. It's at this table we're reminded once again that Jesus did the seemingly impossible for me in my repetitive sin. And Jesus has done the seemingly impossible for you and forgiving our sins. And from that faith in Him may flow the seemingly impossible forgiveness and mercy towards those who grievously sinned against us. Let's pray together.
Jesus, thank you that you did not trivialize miracles in your many parable of the mulberry tree. But you've reminded us that you are willing to do a deep work in our hearts, uprooting the bitterness and the resentment and the anger and the retaliation and the unforgiving spirit that often rules and reigns in our hearts. By grace through faith in you, Lord Jesus, you've promised to, to begin to uproot those deep-seated hating attitudes towards others. Do the impossible and enable us by your grace and for your glory to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. May we celebrate this table as a pledge of that forgiveness and a renewing grace to forgive others as you've forgiven us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.